Somehow we have to manage without Suzanne today. <coughs> you all are laughing, but I'm not. <laughs> okay. Um, people in and out of town bouncing back and forth between classes, but anyway, here we are. Um, just looking ahead, today's, I think today's going to be really important. I, I hope I said that last week because we're going to go to principles in a more obvious way, a, I think a more explicit way this morning. So some of the things that have been very subtle and veiled, um, um, I hope, um, will become clear. Um, we've got two more weeks. Next week we'll do nine and ten. Nine is the is the um, book when the temptation takes place. The last week will be ten and or eleven and twelve. The, in my mind, there, there's not much due for a graduate class or an undergraduate class, there would because you have to take on the whole poem. But for our purposes, there's, there's, um, there's not much to do. What's going to happen at the end is um, another angel will come to Adam and give him a vision of the future. Um, a couple of interesting, this is going to be a really big point. We're going to come to it today. To me, it's just so major for the whole poem, but you'll, you'll see when we get there. But two interesting things are, are um, approaching and connecting each other, being related to each other as we move to the end. Um, in the very last chapters, um, Adam's going to be given a vision of the future, and it's through that vision that he will see Mary and Christ. And you won't appreciate it now, but I think you'll certainly appreciate it then. When you hold that fact up against the action of the whole poem, the first five, six books with Satan and the fall, the, all the metaphysical realities that, that Milton makes present to us, and then set them against the, the very brief description we have of Christ, you have to ask yourself, where's the dramatic focus of the poem? What does that reveal about the poem? Um, and it's it's, it's commitment to, um, to show this um, this false epic hero, Satan. Um, what do we make of heroes after that? I mean, Adam and Eve um, give us very little to hope for, and, and the picture that we have of Christ as the end is just a mere vision. You know, we won't there will be no dramatic treatment of him at all. So the, the focus of the poem, we'll see then that the focus of the poem will have been on Satan, the metaphysical realities, the angels, the war in heaven, things like that. But virtually no epic hero as we know it. Um, so it's, it's one, one more problem, problematic area in, in Milton we have to look at. But anyway, next week we'll do 9-10, the following week. 11 and 12, and then, I think I said this, I'm going to spend one week 
after Milton putting the Catholic and Protestant worlds together because at that point there'll be more to say. It'll be more obvious. Today's going to be a preparation for that last, that final meeting when I put the two worlds together because some really important things are happening here that I want to look closely at. So, so just looking ahead, 9-10 next week, the temptation, the, actually the fall, and 11 and 12 after and we'll be done, okay? Um, any, any prayers? I know that there, there's lots going on. Yeah, Denise, uh, Matt Schaefer, uh, who's uh, suffering from lung cancer. She's a friend of yours, Don? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, did you say Terry? Terry, uh-huh. Did you say heart attack? No, he has a perforated colon and he's in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. Oh, one more. Tom, who uh, right now is getting a stent put in his arteries. Um, Our Tom? No, <coughs> not Tom Kelly. It's different Tom. Kowalski. See what's happening that you get done? He's getting a stent put in his uh, okay. arteries. Uh, he has yeah. Breath right. And, right. Uh, he determined that he had blockage. Boy. He's in a TB hospital right Our, now. our age is just... <laughs> I could give you a list. Don't you feel like we ought to make a geriatrics word or something? <laughs> I mean, just, God. I am, in comparison, very small, but I go in for some outpatient surgery on Monday. On Monday? Uh, just for good results. It's fine. Yes. And then here's Father Joseph. Who's say? Father Joseph. He's my cousin. Father Joseph? Father Joseph. He's put in hospice, that's why I wasn't here last week. In hospice? In hospice, uh, yeah. Father Joseph. Um, Thinking you have one more? Sure. Back, 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 no, back, no. Black, Jenny said her last night, and she just had her eye removed. Say the first name. Barbara. Barbara. And what's happening to her again? She had an eye infection a year or two ago, it's never healed, and so now they have to take her eye out. Wow. ran into more complications yesterday during the surgery. So I, I don't, I'm so out of touch with this stuff. Do they replace it with an eye? Can, I have not heard yet. Yeah? To, God. Wow. Boy. I think I, you've heard me say this before. I would like, I would like to get a rope and hang the person who used the word or the phrase, these are our golden years. <laughs> really, I'd like to take that person and shoot him. Or her. Or her. Well, you know, when we were 17, we were bulletproof and you never Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, to me, it's one of the great American illusions, you know, that we're going to go into off into the sunset. And when you watch the advertisement, there are beaches and you know, retirement homes and all this comfort. And I'd just like to take that guy guy and strangle him. Um, and I don't know that I have to go to confession. For, I guess I would, I don't know. So, uh, one more, sorry, one more. Uh, eyes, her name is Kathy O'Shaughnessy. So she had a melanoma behind her eye and I just had surgery to remove the radiation pattern. You guys are gonna have to help me when I go through because there's no way I'm gonna remember yes. this. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, for your words to us. Um, two things. Um, you've asked all of us to go out and baptize um, in your name and the Father and the Spirit. But the thing that's was so, one of the things that um, was important in the readings, your words to us this morning is, it's our, our call to the um, universality of our church. Um, that's particularly important here in this class. Um, you call us to offer your love to everybody, everybody. Um, whatever their beliefs, whatever their stance, we are to bring you to the world because all ch all people are your children. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, to put away the <laughs> the mind-forged manacles, Blake's calls them, those things that are in our heads that so often get in the way of loving the way you have asked us to. Strengthen us, please, to do that. Ask a special um, grace on Terry, help him recover from his injuries. Um, be with Fred, uh, watching over him, and returning to help out at work. Sorry, Denise? Who, what is it, Don? I forgot, sorry. Lung cancer. Lung cancer. Um, watch over Denise. Um, if such things are possible, um, help remove that cancer. And if it's not, um, let a healing go on and um, help her to see in this hardship, um, a way of growing in faith closer to you, drawing herself closer to you. Tom, sorry, for the stent. That's right. Um, let the operation go well with Tom. Um, let his heart be strengthened, healed, um, so that he can recover normal activities. Um, once again, as for all of us, when we meet these things in our age, um, whatever happens, if we lose things, help us to see these trials as a way of growing closer to you. Um, I can't even read Grace. What? Sue. Oh, Sue. Sorry. It's my, it's my writing. It's just be with Sue. Um, um, let her heart be quiet. Um, doesn't sound like a major thing, but. Let her heart be quiet, surround her with your protection. Again, let this be a means of her coming closer to you. Father Joseph, um, in hospice, bless his soul. We um, don't know him, but um, we all owe priests such a thanksgiving, um, even with their sins or faults, um, they struggle to offer their lives um, forgive him his sins, um, help prepare him to go to you and comfort him in uh, this last stage of his life. Um, for Barbara and Kathy, both through their eyes, let the operations, any treatment go well. Um, if um, Barbara is to lose her eye, um, somewhere help her to find a comfort in this. Um, let it be so for Kathy as well. 
ask a special blessing on Marcy and Bob. Um, be with Marcy um, and the difficulty she's facing with the medication. Um, be with Christopher and Kayla. We offer all of these prayers and thanksgiving um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Okay, can you turn to um, Jones Very, the poem we're going to read this morning? I, th I think it's the second poem, second page in your, um, in your handout, your packet. The Lost, Jones Very. These are all mixed up because of pulling out. Yeah. Just very quickly, Jones Ferry was one of the transcendentalists, American transcendentalists. He was a contemporary of Thoreau's and um, Emerson, Ralph Emerson, Waldo Emerson, thank God my mind. God. Um, if you're familiar with that period of time, you know that the Protestant religion is in crisis. It's failing. It's failing. The, if you go back to the 17th century and, the, and look at the writings of the early Protestant fathers, there's this profound, intense zeal. These people came from Europe, from the Netherlands, to found a country that would allow them to practice their religions freely, to practice their faith freely. So, obviously they were tough men. They, they risked their lives to cross an ocean to come here when there was virtually no civilization here at all. So they had to make homes, they had to establish um, a place to live. Lots died, they didn't survive, you know, that first year. So deeply, deeply committed Christians. They were intense in their faith and their, their belief in how important it was that they be free to practice God as they saw fit, that they shouldn't be forced to practice their religion the way it was true in, in Europe and the old world. So. Anyway, 100 years, 150 years later, the Protestant theology is dying out. Um, I, I think because of some of the, well, I mean, religions always struggle. You know, when new orders are founded a century later, there's always a, a trailing off in inspiration. It's true for the Jesuits, the Franciscans, and they constantly have to go through periods of renewal. Um, it, it, in some ways, it's harder to follow a leader with the leader's intensity than it is to create a new order. Um, people get disillusioned and they want to turn away. So it's, it's, it's not an uncommon thing. And it, and it is true of the um, New England Protestant culture. I think the doctrines, predestination, you know, the really dark, the, the forbidding parts of that um, that theology had to die out, you know. And one of the, one of the, I don't know what to call it. One of the residual products of it was Unitarianism. Emerson was Unitarian. Um, it, it created this group of what we know as American transcendentalists. They had this belief in this transcendental power. They didn't believe in the Trinity. Their um, their belief in Christ is problematic, questionable everywhere. And it's interesting to see that because remember, when you go back to the reformers, 
The reformers saw that the individual private will was the most important thing in their lives. I'm going to come back to this today in a major way. And we saw the effects of that. I mean, you've got a fragmenting of the church because what's in every private individual's mind can be different from what's in another person's mind. So um, Emerson writes this, one of the, probably one of the most um, emblematic essays in American history called Self-Reliance. You know, to, um, each person should answer to his own drum. Um, that's such an American icon, that, that work. It says a lot about our character. So Jones Very was a contemporary of Emerson's through these transcendentalists, but he was different in one major respect. He, he was um, a Quaker, and he, he, he saw himself as one of the friends. You know that, right? It, with a capital F, the Quakers are called friends. So he saw himself as one of the friends, and like, like Quakers, he believed deeply in this inner light that that inner light was the means by which he would go through the world. And he believed, like most Reformation thinkers, that man was depraved and he had no free will. Emerson and Thoreau and the rest of the, unit, or the Unitarians and the people who had fallen away from their faith had this great sense of man's capabilities. They didn't need Christ, they didn't need a trinity. They had these extraordinary natural powers. Um, very was different because he, he believed so deeply in the importance of the Holy Spirit, this inner life, and, and what a man could do with it and what he couldn't do without it. So that was a defining element of his faith. You're going to see it in the poem, but I want to give you an, an anecdote before we turn to it. The, the, he belonged to that transcendentalist circle, and most of the men would tend to make fun of him for his religious beliefs. And I, I can't remember where I got this, but I, I remember reading it in a story somewhere or something that I'd read on that group. Um, Very, I think, was visiting Emerson at his house, and they were talking about the importance of free will and making fun of him because he didn't believe in it. Emerson did. And Very believed that man could do nothing without God's help. And that's how... That's how fundamental that notion of depravity is to the Protestant mind. So Emerson said to him, so when you, when you, they must have been in a living room next to a fire, he said, so when you put your elbow up on the mantelpiece, are you putting it there because God made you put it there? I mean, it's just, it's mocking him. You know, it's saying that, it, is, is there nothing um, you do that isn't really performed by the Spirit? Um, I think, I think Vary's answer was yes. I mean, he, he just believed that deeply. Because, if, I mean, think about it. If you believe in the, the complete depravity of man, there's, everything you do would be evil. If you do anything that isn't evil, it's only by virtue of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, anyway, um, Jones, Vary Jones, um, Jones Vary, sorry, Jones Vary is a, a, um, an American transcendentalist and a poet. Lots of people aren't even aware of his poetry. He's, his poetry is such a minor part of you know, that period when you've got figures like Emerson and Thoreau and Melville, Melville and Hawthorne, who are the, the, the great figures of that time. 
But I, some of the poetry that he produced, I think, is I mean, some of it I think is just extraordinary. I want to read the Lost. Um, now, um, take if just very briefly take a look at the form of it because those of you who have been doing this for a while will recognize that he writes this poem in the in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet. It's got three quatrains with with the different rhyme schemes for each quatrain. A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, a conclusion. So that's Shakespearean, okay? Is that clear? Shown C, blown C, B or B, right? A, B, A, B. Toys, them, enjoys, stem, okay? So if you go down it, you'll see that it's got three quatrains, three groups of four lines, and that it ends with a couplet. That's Shakespeare, those of you who did this before. The poem's called The Lost, and he, he begins by, I mean, clearly he's aware that most people are lost because they give themselves to the world too much. They, in his words, they, they give all of their substance to the world. Um, and because they do, they miss that, what for him is a mystical union with things that's only made possible through the work of the Spirit. When the Spirit is with you, that what moves you allows you to come into union, be one with other things, whether it's a bird or a flower or another person. Okay? And without it, you're lost. You're among the lost, the damned. One of the beauties of the poem for me is that the poem's about the lost. It's about people who are lacking that. They're, they're caught in the world, the world of things. They don't know that, that um, experience of union with others. So even though it's about the lost, the, the spirit of the poem is so absolutely gentle. It's so, it's so understated. There's nothing accusing or condemning or... He's painting a picture of, of people who are lost, but his, the spirit that he brings to it is so understated. It's, to me, it's a, it's a beautiful accomplishment. Okay, okay, so Jones Vary, The Lost. I think I'm going to read it and comment on it, and then I'm going to read it again. Just The fairest day that ever yet has shone will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet is blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. When you're one with the day, when you're one with the flower, it will be because the Spirit is in you unifying, making you one with Him. Okay? But notice the way the turn takes place. But... Right? Second quatrain begins. But. And I love that phrase, time's toys. But thou art far away among time's toys. What a beautiful phrase. That is, with all these playthings that take up your time. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them. Thyself, it's in you. That is, you're too caught in your own ego. Um, you're separated. Thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys. But wilted now thou hangest upon the stem. You don't even see that you're so taken with yourself that you're not one with the flower. And, you're, and the irony, you're wilting like that. That is, you're among dead things. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice. Um, it's a diminished voice. The, that is, the bird won't sing full-throated. You won't hear that because you're not one with it. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. That is, 
in love you will be one with that bird, and then the song you hear will be full. And thou new risen midst these wonders live, that now to them dost all thy substance give. When you give yourself up to give to things, you'll become one with them. Right now you're too preoccupied, too selfish. Uh, you live for yourself, and you're out of you're out of touch with the rest of creation. So the poem is really about a mystical union with things that the spirit makes possible. And what the condition that man is left in um, without the spirit. He's among the lost. Okay? So let me read it again and just be still on it so you can hear the poem and the lost. The fairest day that ever yet has shown will be when thou the day within shall see the fairest rose that ever yet has blown when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now, thou hangest upon thy stem. The bird thou hearest on the budding tree thou hast made sing with thy forgotten voice, but when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And now, new risen, midst these wonders live, that now to them dost all thy substance give. You can hear the biblical language too, you know, in the archaic thou and thee, it's a um, beautiful poem. Okay. To Milton. Or any comments on this poem? Any, anybody want to briefly? Yeah. That's a yeah. I love that phrase, times twice. Okay. Very, very brief review. I want to make this brief because we've got a major, major thing to take up today. Um, we've talked about the importance of the epic tradition for Milton. Um, he knew that tradition well. He knew Homer in Greek. He knew Virgil in Latin. Um, and he spent a long time contemplating what exactly he would write his epic on. Um, I think you know that in the early part of his years when he was thinking about doing it, he, 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 he thought he would take up the Arthurian romances and chivalric deeds. I, 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 I it's hard for me to imagine what he would have done with them given his character, but, but he finally chose to take the fall, which is um, the, the, the theme behind all themes. What Milton did in choosing that is go to the root of all epics, because in a sense he explained them all. This is behind what's in all of them. Milton knew um, that the epics by nature are, deal with a cosmic world. They always show man located in a cosmic world, and he also knew that in that sense, the epics tended to be encyclopedic. They, um, they show the fullness of the world, um, and, and the epic is seen as the, the highest form of education in the Western world up until that time. Truly encyclopedic. Homer was called the educator of Greece, which, which means, in some sense, he was the educator of Western civilization, because our, our roots are Greco-Roman. They go back to a, a classical past. Our roots are Athens and Rome. 
Those are our roots. Homer is called the educator um, of the Greeks of the Western world. That was one of the tasks that an epic poet took on. To, 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 to locate man in the cosmos at that time. So what he did was take the, the most important, the up-to-date learning at his period and bring it into the poem. So, so his, treatment, his metaphysical treatment of the heavens, of the angels and God, would have been his treatment according to what he had learned in his education. His treatment of Adam and Eve, the same. He would have, he would have treated them according to the best psychology at that time. We've looked at a little bit of that. We have to come back to it. But. So what he does is locate a people, an English people at that period, and whoever else would have read him, in their age. He would have been the educator of his age, revealing truths to a people at that point in history. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, those of you who are here, I would say Melville's doing that with Moby Dick. And in fact, you know my, my own reading of it is that Melville is answering a particularly Protestant problem, the, most especially the, the Calvin notion of predestination. Ahab is almost destroyed by that notion. But he's laying out a world through Ishmael. He's showing us that this world is not as bad as Ahab sees it, that there's this wonder everywhere if, if one could only stay open to it and love. We went through that. Remember that the stages where he dissociates himself from Ahab's quest and more and more begins to love. So what he presents us is through this greater openness to the goodness of creation, what, what's open, what, what's, what can be revealed if you're open to it. So every epic poet um, reveals a cosmic world, a cosmic order in that age. And that's what Milton's doing here. Um, last week we took a look just very briefly at what I would call the setup for the fall. Remember book four opens, I think it's, it's four or five, when the opening lines are, oh, only, if only the parents had heard John's warning in the book of Revelation, then they might have avoided their fall. If only they could have been warned. Well, the irony, of course, is Raphael goes down to warn Adam, and it doesn't help at all because he's going to fall. And we have got to come back to that. That, to me, is one of the more telling passages in the whole poem. So we're, the fall is being set up. Raphael's been sent to warn Adam. When he comes to him, he, he reveals the cosmos, he reveals um, the days of creation, and he describes the war in heaven. The, the, the reading for that is really important because, remember, um, it, 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 it comes on the heels of Raphael saying, if you will only be obedient, if you'll only be good, you will gradually be transformed into a spirit. Even that's a telling line. Not a body, not, not a person having a body, a spirit. You, his word was ethereal. You become more ethereal, more like a spirit. If you're obedient, well, Adam is puzzled by that line because he has no reason to think things will be any different from the way they've been. And it's at that point that Raphael says, to, tells him there was a fall the revolt of the devils, and he needs to be careful because the devils may tempt him. So he's been warned. He's been warned. And I think we talked about that a little bit. What are the implications of that? Um, because one of the things we can say is, 
it makes the fall much worse than it is in Genesis. Nobody warns Adam in Genesis. That doesn't take place. This is this is Milton's Sorry? His version? Yeah, his reading of it, yeah. So he darkens it. Or Adam's been warned. That makes it far, far worse. The other thing I think to keep in mind is I think it's also um, Milton's way of saying um, we don't take seriously enough how grave things are. So we're, we're too inclined to fall when we've, when we've had warnings all along. That, that's my reading. I'm not sure of that. But what we do know is that it darkens the fall because Adam's been warned. Um, this whole question of reading, which is going to be the focus of what we do today, um, you know that I've been talking about this from the very beginning, and, and I, I know, I think for people who have not heard it before, it's a little bit of a shock, because when we get to this age, we think, of course we read well, I know how to read, you know, began reading when I was in kindergarten, and you know that my own position on that is that we don't read very well at all. We think we know things, this is Socrates, we think we've got all these answers, we think we see things, and if that were true, why does the world keep hitting us over the head? I mean, I just, I don't think we, we read very well at all. Um, St. Thomas says that truth is the conformity of the mind with things. I'm going to repeat that. Truth is the conformity of mind with things. When our mind grasps things as they are, then we're one with the truth. The opposite of that is, and that's, this is very modern, we make the world what we want. There is no truth. It's relative. What may be true for you may not be true for me. So one of, the, one of the major concerns of this poem, at least as I'm presented here, is how people read. Um, Milton has, uh, is, is one with the reformers of his age. All of them have turned away from the Catholic Church and that basic understanding. They make their private reading of something the basis for what they do in life, for whatever they do. They are arbiters of their world. And one of the ironies that we took out of that work on the Reformation is they don't disagree. I mean, they don't agree among themselves. There's tremendous disagreement, and I want to come back to that. That's so important. If, if, if truth is real, it means it's, it's real and unchanging and always the same. So how can people have different readings of it? The fact that they contradict each other is a problem in itself. So this, this problem of how, how we read the poem is important how Milton reads reality, and how the characters in the poem read themselves. Um, you know that Milton is critical of the Catholic Church. Um, he, he describes the orders, the Dominicans and the friars, and all those people concerned with um, ceremonies as being drawn off into limbo. Um, we have all these exchanges between God and the Son, and it it, it presents a problem of how we read them because most critics find God, Milton's treatment of God, awful. He, resentful, defensive. At one point, we're going to, a passage I'm going to read today, it's hard to see him in any other way as being spiteful. His reason for creation was not out of love, it's to not let Satan have the last word. He's got to compensate for what Satan did. 
we can't make the characters mean whatever we want. There are lots of people who see Satan as this heroic figure, in lots of ways he is. But uh, Milton makes it clear from the very beginning that Satan is a liar. We, we cannot believe anything he says. He fools the demons. They don't read him well. Satan doesn't even know himself when it comes to um, death and sin. He doesn't even know that's his daughter. We talked about that. He, he has no self-knowledge. All of them don't know that they don't know. Their, their intellects are lost. So in some ways, Milton is, I think what Milton is doing is showing our, our belief in an epic hero <coughs> is misguided. All epic heroes um, are false in some way. So there's something wrong with, according to Milton, there's something wrong with the whole epic tradition. This notion of heroism is it, because he believes in the depravity of man. It's all an illusion. So these problems of reading for Milton, for the characters themselves, are very real. And it, it, um, it, it constantly forces us to look at, the, at what we believe, how we're reading things. Okay. Um, Okay, that's just a quick review. Um, what I'd like to do now, I want to just very quickly summarize the three books for today, very quickly. And I'd like to read a couple of passages. Um, but before we do, because I want you to keep this in mind, just so we're all clear. Last week we, we, we came to that passage when God was watching Satan move to earth. He called all the angels together. This is Raphael coming down to warn Adam because Satan's on the way. And Raphael telling um, Adam why he has to be careful. To do that, he has to go back to the cause of the revolt. Okay? It's then when God calls all the angels together. In fact, let's look at it just briefly because this is, this is the crux of it really, what, one of the major points of the whole poem, so let's just look at it for a second. Hey, Bob. Yeah? Did Milton invent this story of the revolting heaven, or is that something that's been floating around for a while? Um, I, I think that, God, boy, this is a good question, Don. I, I don't know. Honestly, I can't answer it. Let me, let me just say this. That, um, boy, good question. Um, there were a lot of um, apocryphal works that weren't included in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were um, Gnostic traditions in the Jewish tradition. Um, my guess is that, that I'd be surprised if there wasn't something about the war in heaven in some of those works, but I don't know that. But Milton would have been well read in all of those apocryphal works. It would have been really important to him. Um, so I can't answer it, but but I think there's a good chance that there would have been some readings. And he had the whole Homeric world, you know, the battles going on among the gods. And this isn't the same thing because it's not the Homeric gods. It's God the Father and the Son and angels, not, not the Homeric gods. Um, turn to Book 5, Line 600. I just, I, I just want to do this to underscore it. You all know it, but... Um, line 600. 
Here, angels, progeny of light, thrones, dominations, princedom, virtues, powers, hear my decree, which unrevoked shall stand this day. I have begot whom I declare my only son, and on this holy hill him have anointed, whom ye now hold at my right hand. When the angels go off, you know that, that Satan whispers into the ear of one of his companions. This is about line 680 or so. Um, and what he basically says is, new laws? Where did these come from? By what right does this monarch, it's all very politicized, by what right does this monarch arbitrarily change things here? And the other part of that argument that, that's the most important part of it, I believe, is um, according to the discussion that goes on here between his friend and then later, when Abjo, remember when he leaves, when he opposes Satan, um, like line 830, but to grant it thee an um, unjust that equal over equals monarch reign thyself, though great and glorious dost thou count of all, or all angelic natures joined in one, equal to him begotten son by whom as by his word the mighty father made all things. Here's the interesting thing. The way that the son is treated as if, as if he were an angel himself, a special creation, even though he was the means of creation. So the angels see him as being one of them, even though he's treated as the source of creating them too, the means of creating them, and so are arbitrarily elevated. Okay, so it seems like an arbitrary act on God's part. Critics make a lot of this and you can imagine why. But the interesting question that it forces on us is, is Milton Arian? It's a serious question. Because the, even though the son and father, no, let me, let me put this different. You're going to see a very, very different treatment of this in Dante. It's, it's hard to read the father and son without feeling those conversations could have never taken place. You know, the, the, the son cannot not know what's in the father's mind, and the father cannot know what's in the son mind, if they're indwelling. As Milton presents them, they're not. They're distinct individuals. So even though verbally they, they, they're said to have the same nature, they don't. And here in these passages about the revolt, it's, it's fairly clear that, that the son is like a special creation one with the angels in nature, but the means of them too. So for God the Father to elevate him from one perspective seems arbitrary. seems like the actions of a despot. And it's on that basis that Satan rebels. Um, so here in the center of this poem, this action takes place that, that raises all sorts of questions about Milton's treatment of metaphysical issues. The Father, the Son, the angelic order, how we're to understand it, how we're to understand the fall. Okay? Now, keep that in mind with this, this within the context, the larger context of reading in general. I want to just very, very quickly um, summarize um, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 deals with the war itself. Um, in 5, we left Satan withdrawing his forces. In 6, the angels have gathered on two sides and they go to battle with each other. It begins with Abdiel confronting Satan, which is appropriate because, remember, Abdiel was the one angel who had the 
courage to, to stand apart and withdraw from him. And it's interesting that, that he's received in heaven as being forgiven. You know, can it, I'm going to raise this question, can an angel be divided? Um, because if he can, God can work with him. But God made it clear in the third book that all the angels fell and there's no redemption possible for them. Redemption is possible for humans because they were tricked. Um, Abdiel and Satan confront each other. Satan and Michael meet because they're the greatest angels. And um, Michael delivers, he, he, this is, he, he delivers a blow that cuts Satan's sword in half and then slices him and gives him a wound. And it says that that, that was the first time Satan felt pain. And then it goes on to describe other pairings of battle. It's exactly what unfolds in the Iliad, with pairs going off to fight each other in this war. So he's, he's one with Homer in so much of what he does here. Um, the fallen angels are routed. Um, they regroup and then go off and um, with some sense of having been defeated in the very first day. In the council that takes place then, um, one of the angels um, challenged, his name is Nisroch, challenged everybody else to come up with something that would help them because if they didn't, they would, be, they would have no chance in the battle. So Satan is treated, interestingly again, as the deliverer. He's the, he's the counterpart to Christ. He comes up with gunpowder. <laughs> and the, next, the war the next day begins with the bad angels coming out with cannons and gunpowder. Gun, gunpowder and the good, good angels being thrown off for a while, but they go and pick up hills and start picking up hills and throwing them. And then it's, it's described as hills amid the air encountering hills. So we're just seeing hills being tossed about. I can't read this without getting really upset at this point because to me it just is ridiculous. The Homeric battles to me are very real. This to me is silly and I'll come to it in a second because it, it hides a problem. Um, Heaven gone to rack with ruin overspread to avenge himself on his enemies and transfer all power to him. Heaven, heaven's in a shambles. Can you imagine heaven in a shambles? Just, um, what are we to do with this? In the th third day, um, the father has been deliberately withholding the son, I think, to magnify his power. When the son comes in, he uses only half his strength, and when he appears, he's wearing this this face of terror, and he puts all of the demons to rout. And the description of their defeat is that they go over the cliff, the edge of the, the edge of the heavenly world, the way the goats did when um, Christ sent the goats over the cliff with the demons inside. Remember? And then, then there's the nine-day fall. And at that point, we're back at the beginning of the book because that's where we begin. In Medius race. So this is everything that led up to it. So Milton right now is explaining how we got to the beginning. That is, like in all epics, this, these are the secret causes behind the disorder. Because I remember, I've said this again and again, in Medius Race, in the midst of things, we're in the middle of a disorder. Our son's on drugs. Our wife ran off. You know, I mean, whatever, whatever it is, something shakes our world. And up until that point, we think everything's okay. At that point, we, have to, we can't take things for granted anymore. We have to begin to look at them. 
with, with some sense that we hope to find out what caused them, to, uh, to, to help understand them so we can do something to answer them. That's, that's our earthly condition. And I would say we're always in the middle of things. <laughs> always. But, but the, epic, the epic action is, in medias res, something, some problem is, is um, surface, surfaces. You have to learn to deal with it, and you go back to try to understand the causes. Today, people would go to therapy. Some people. I know some who wouldn't. <laughs> um, one thing therapy can't do is it cannot explain spiritual realities. There's, there's a lot that it can do. It cannot deal with that. And the question is, are there any problems that ultimately don't go to spiritual reality? So. So here, we're finally um, made to understand what produced the situation that we experienced when we began the book. Why are these angels here? Um, book seven, Milton makes his third invocation. Um, this time it's to Urania, um, because he's going to describe creation. Um, there's some beautiful lines in here. Take a look at... Um, book 7, around line 520. <clears throat> He's just described creation exactly as it takes place in Genesis, the six days of creation and the seventh day resting. But he comes to the high, God, the Father, comes to the high point of the work that he's done or with the Son. And he says about line 520, let us make now man in our image, man in our similitude, and let them rule over the, the fish and fowl of the air, of sea and air, beasts of the field and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps the ground. This said, he formed thee, Adam, thee, O man, dust of the ground, and in thy nostrils breathe the breath of life in his own image he created thee in the image of God express and thou becamest a living soul male he created thee but thy consort female for race and blessed mankind and said be fruitful multiply quickly what's the difference between Adam and Eve here in the way Milton presents them Yeah, she did. I mean, when you, when Adam describes his creation, it's actually when he describes when he when he describes that his own creation. He he had, it's a, I think it's beautifully done. He describes it's almost like an overarching shadow, an eagle. I, it's the sort of picture I have with um, Mary, the, the the holy the Holy Spirit sort of hovering and whatever. That he he's aware of this sort of shadowy, like a dove eagle. I think it's the Holy Spirit, and he's overwhelmed by the beauty of. It. He's, he's not fully awake and aware. And then God takes the rib and creates Eve. And when, he, when Adam first looks at Eve, he can't take his eyes off of her. He, once, once again, it's a little bit like Eve at the pool, remember? When she sees the image, she can't turn away from it. She's so, so taken by the beauty. Same thing with Adam. When he sees the beauty, he, he, he says, I can't remember the words, but he, something like he'd be lost without it. He'd just be forlorn to lose that picture because the beauty of it is so 
uh, so amazing. Nothing new with that. Right? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I mean, we pass it off in the modern world, even though it's in front. You can't, you can't see an advertisement today without some beautiful, sexy woman, whatever, whatever it is. Um, I mean, it's just stunning to me the way we deny that, because so clearly advertisers, producers, play on the subliminal effects of that. You know? Um, yeah, the interesting thing here is that she's created for procreation. And remember, in the passages that we first looked at, it said Adam for contemplation and valor. And I asked, it, well, valor for what at that point? I mean, there's an unfallen world. Why would he need valor? And she for sweetness and gentleness. And here for race. So, um, that is, there's no acknowledgement that she's a human being capable of contemplating. Um, she's a... She's a, a She's a source of compa a companion, a com a, so that a compatibility will go on between Adam and Eve. Um, book eight deals with that. Um, I want to come back to seven in a minute, to the end of it, but I want to go forward just for a moment. Take a look at, in book eight, line 354. Which book? Eight. Eight. Okay. This is Adam, sorry, this is Raphael picking up with metaphysical issues again. Adam has all these questions about creation and the nature of the cosmos and Raphael's answering all of them. Adam at that point describes the moment when he comes to consciousness. That's about line 250 and so. And then there's this exchange. Remember, Adam now is describing to Raphael what he recalls concerning his own creation. Um, about line, let's say line three, 300, 305, somewhere in there. As in the air smooth sliding without step last led me up a woody mountain whose high top was plain, a circuit wide enclosed with goodliest trees planted with walks and bowers that what I saw of earth before scarce pleasant seemed, each tree loaded with fairest fruit that hung to the eye, tempting, stirred in me sudden appetite to pluck and eat. Whereat I waked and found before mine eyes all real as the dream had um, lively shadowed. Here had new begun my wandering, had not he who was my guide up hither from among the trees appeared, presence divine, rejoicing, but with awe for adoration at his feet I fell, submiss, he reared me in, whom thou sawest I am. That is, this is the God who created him. And he, God asks of him obedience to, to take seriously the one prohibition he gives, which is not to eat of that tree. That's line 325. Now here's, um, he sees Eve and adores her, but um, <clears throat> about line 370, Adam expresses his gratitude for everything in front of him, but expresses his grief that he has no one to share it with. He said, all of this is beautiful, but it's not rational. Um, there's no companion for him. 
line 365. I see not who partakes in solitude what happiness who can enjoy alone, or all enjoying what contentment find. Thus I presumptuous. And the vision bright is with a smile more bright and thus replied. So God replies to him um, as if Adam had anything to teach God. He doesn't. Um, what callest thou solitude is not the earth with various living creatures. You know, you're not alone. You have all this beauty around here. Um, it, I'm reminded of Abraham when Abraham did that bargaining with God. Adam has to be very careful right now because he doesn't want to offend God. He's just created him. So he says, I hope I'm not being presumptuous. But even with all those things, there's nobody here rationally to, you know, to share it with. And God makes it clear that he was only testing him, that he had already anticipated this and was planning to make Eve. So Adam's not saying anything God didn't already know. Um, but, but then he says this, um, about line f um, 400. In the choice of thy associates, Adam, and will taste no pleasure, though in pleasure solitary, what thinkest thou then of me and this my state? Seem I to thee sufficiently possessed of happiness or not? Remember, because God's complete. He's self-sufficient. Humans aren't. We're not sufficient in ourselves. We're, we're, con we're contingent creatures because we were made. Nobody made God. If somebody made God, there would have been somebody before him greater than him. God is all being from eternity. He's sufficient in himself. Completely, complete. He needs nothing. Um, what thinkest thou of me and this my state? Seem I to thee sufficiently possessed of happiness or not? Who am alone from all eternity, for none I know second to me are like equal much less. How have I then with whom to hold converse, save with the cre creatures which I made and those to me inferior, infinite descents, beneath what other creatures are to thee? Um, I'm alone from eternity, from infinity, and I'm not unhappy. Um, and, but he acknowledges that Adam's a created creature, so he's got all these things below him, but as a created creature, it would be good for him to have another creature, so he makes it. But I want to hold on to this, because what we're getting here is at what, what has to be called Adam's original solitude, that he existed in solitude until Eve was made. And God's response to that is to remind him that he's made in his image that God himself is solitary. He lives in solitude. <clears throat> Who am alone from all eternity, for none I know second to me or like equal much less. Is this a Trinitarian God? How are we to look at, once again, at Milton's treatment of God? Um, Adam goes on to describe Eve and the effect that she had on him, and the, the book comes to, the chapter comes to an end with Raphael giving him a warning. I really want to emphasize this. He says, be careful, because Adam's made it clear a number of times now that he's so taken with Eve that he almost can't do without her. And we've got that, um, an extension of what we saw when Eve looked into the pool and she could not take her eyes off that image. Now I want to go back, um, turn back to the end, or book seven, line, s at the very end, the very last 6.30, the end of seven. We're coming to what for me it is one of the most 
One of the most important things we have to look at um, to understand what's going on here. Remember, um, in, in book six, Raphael describes the war in heaven. Yeah? And in book seven, he describes creation. Okay? And we talked briefly about that. Remember, Adam is described as a living soul. That's the phrase. He's in the image of God. He, the words are, a li- you are a living soul. Eve for race only. So Adam's a living soul, she for race. The implications of that for the way, for the way that Milton looks at man and woman, the, the relationship they have with each other. At the end of seven, then, having described creation, he says this, about 635. Um, when the creation is finished, the hosts of heaven sing hallelujah, glory to, to God for having done such an extraordinary thing. And Raphael ends by saying, So sung they, and the imperium rung with hallelujahs, thus was Sabbath kept, and thy request think now fulfilled that asked how first this world and face of things began and what before thy memory was done from the beginning that posterity informed by thee might know if else thou seekest aught not surpassing human measure say I'm going to read this again because I want to what what is Raphael saying and what are the implications of this for our reading of Genesis um, he's just described the creation, the, the, the songs of glory that are sent up in heaven. And thy request think now fulfilled. He's answered Adam's questions. That asked how first this world and face of things began, and what before thy memory was done from the beginning, that posterity informed by thee might know, if else thou seekest, ought not surpassing human measure. Say... What's he saying? And what does this do for our reading of Genesis? He's saying, I just described to you all the things that took place before you could have known because you weren't alive. They weren't a part of your memory. Yeah? But now that you know them, they're going to be passed on to posterity. Be careful um, not to try to seek things above your human nature. But you've got this, and this will be passed on through pos- through pos- posterity. Sorry, through posterity. So you talking about scripture here? So my question, Revelation? I what, Don? Revelation scripture. That that's the that's the word of God that's being passed on to you. That uh, you know don't don't seek beyond that. Right. Who's the author of Genesis? Uh, supposedly Moses. Yeah. Yes. And just let's be. God is the author through Moses. Okay. What does this do for our reading of, of Genesis? Remember, we started with this question at the very beginning. Milton's taking Genesis, and he's, um, 
he's treating it according to his own lights. He's introducing a character, an angel, into the story that doesn't take place in Scripture when Milton himself would have believed two things. First of all, he would have believed in the infallible authority of Scripture, and he would have believed in something like the infallibility of his own reading of it, that his private reading was the most important thing in his life, that nobody could give that to him, nobody could challenge him on it. But he's introducing a figure into Scripture that doesn't exist in the Bible then or now. And here we've got Raphael coming again. So we know he introduces Raphael to warn Adam. And here again he's saying, all of this stuff took place before your memory. Now it'll become part of your memory and it'll be passed on to posterity. What does this do for our reading of Scripture? Genesis. Well, it's introducing man into that interpretation. It's posterity, posterity as you say. I mean, you're making the story go forward. So now man is the one, to me, man is the one telling the story. Yeah, good. Now, hold on to that, so just like that. It's coming through man, through Adam and his posterity. What kind of knowledge is being passed on through Adam? The amount of knowledge that man should know. Kind of Where does he get this knowledge? Well, through the angel from God. So what kind of knowledge is it? It would have to be a godly Divine knowledge. Divine knowledge, but, but only that part of the knowledge spiritual that God thinks is for man. Yeah, but that's given to, right, but that's given to Adam through an angel. Yeah. What's, well, I mean, I'm really, this is really crucial. What's being passed on through posterity is an angelic form of knowledge. I mean, it's revealing things about... If it's passed on in its true form. I don't know what you mean by that. What we know right now is what, what Raphael's told us. I mean, we don't, right. we don't know what's going to happen. What we, what we can say at this point is we know that, that things that happened before Adam existed are now part of his memory. And that the mode in which they were given to him is angelic. Okay, okay now here but I want to. By the go. time Milton knows it, it's gone through a lot of generations. Right. Well, and the question, yeah, how? What is it exactly? How you know? What does? Is this Milton, or did he receive something outside of Scripture that we're not aware of? Or here, go back to. I want you all to go back to that passage where where, somebody help me because I'm not sure that, where Raphael describes the, the technique that he has to follow in order to tell his story, God bless, to Adam. Oh, here, yeah, line, this is book five, line 570. You said book five? Mm-hmm. Now everybody, hold on. This is we're, we are we are getting the nuts and bolts here. This is this stuff is central to this whole poem and what we're doing. This is tough stuff. You all have it. Line five sixty-five. Now everybody, remember the context. Raphael has just said, if you're obedient, 
you will, you will gradually undergo a transformation and you'll become as a spirit, you'll become etherealized. And you'll take your place with a heavenly host. Remember, no body, just ethereal spirit. Adam says, obedient, what do you mean? And it's at this point that Raphael is going to have to explain to him the cause of the fall. What, what produced Satan, because remember, Raphael's being put on guard to be careful that he may be tempted, that something happened in heaven that he has no, no understanding of at all. Are you all with me? Is everybody okay? Is everybody here? Okay. So you're not talking about 520? Book 5, line 565. I'll come to it in just a second. Okay. But I just want everybody to be clear where we are. Okay. Right? Adam's confused. What do you have to be concerned about? He, as far as he knows, there's nothing to worry about. But that's back in 520. Yeah, you're right. That's where it starts. Well, but I want to look at, I want to look at where in 565. So, okay. so at this point, Raphael says, I've got, this is me now, I'm just paraphrasing. I've got to make clear to you spiritualities that are beyond your understanding. You're human. So I'm going to have to do something um, myself. Now, here's what I want everybody to hold on to. Raphael's going to give a defense of his literary technique, what he's got to do with Adam, because Adam's a human, Raphael's an angel. What he's doing is actually describing at the same time what Milton himself had to do to write this poem. And Milton knew that. Okay? Okay, so, and, and here, I want to just preface this before I read it. St. Paul says, this is from St. Paul, we know the invisible things by the things that are made. Now hold on to this. This is so crucial. This is Paul in Hebrews. We know of invisible things, the, the, the spiritual realities, which are beyond our senses as humans. We know those things through the things that are made. We come to know invisible things through the things that are made. Right? Okay. Here's Raphael. High matter thou joinest in me, O prime of men, sad task and hard, for how shall I relate to human sense the invisible exploits of warring spirits? How without remorse the ruin of so many glorious, once imperfect, while they stood? How last unfold the secrets of another world, perhaps not lawful to reveal? How could he be, if they're unlawful, how in the, wor how in the world could that phrase come in? It, I, I, it just dumbfounds me. If it's unlawful, it shouldn't do it. But, but clearly what Milton is saying is that there's an incongruity between two orders. You're of a human order, these are of a divine metaphysical order. So there's a difficulty here. The secrets of another world, perhaps not lawful to reveal, yet for thy good this is dispensed, and what surmounts the reach of human sense I shall delineate. So by likening spiritual to corporeal forms as may express them best Though what if earth be but the shadow of heaven and things therein each to other like more than on earth is thought. That's an absolutely platonic, platonic reading of a principle that helps explain the way we know things. I shall delineate so by likening spiritual to corporeal form. So, the way I'm going to do this, I'm going to take metaphysical realities. Satan. Has anybody seen Satan lately? I mean, it, 
run across him in your room, or God the Father or Son in their actual form. He's taking spiritual realities that are beyond comprehension. Yeah, beyond our ability to to um, to see to understand, because as corporeal creatures we live in our senses. Angels don't have them. Neither does God. Remember, angels angels have no bodies. They're all intellect. They're form and intellect. Intellect and the will. He's taking invisible realities, spiritual realities, and finding corporeal images to help illustrate them, to make it possible to tell the story. Is everybody clear? Are we okay? Yeah, I mean, how else would you understand them? Yeah. No, well, hold on, hold on. I, there's, we're going to come to that. You've you got a question. No, no, I'm not sure. You sure? I understand, if you do, go ahead. Ask. I wouldn't know what to ask, to be honest. Okay, okay. Maybe, because maybe this will help. He's got spirit. Raphael's saying, Adam's going, what are you talking about, obedience? What harm? Raphael knows a war in heaven has taken place. Adam's got to be on guard. So he's got to tell the story of this war concerning angels, God, the Father, the Son. They're all incorporeal. They're beyond our reach. But so to do that, he's got to take what he knows through his angelic mode of doing and find corporeal image, sense, sense, sensory, physical images, concrete images that are of our world to help make it possible to tell this story. Okay? Okay, now here's my question. There are two ways, there are two ways of knowing. Basically, two ways of knowing. Aristotle, we begin with the visible things. Things that are proportioned to our nature. And through analogies, we climb a ladder of being. We enter into um, grades of it by means of analogies. We do that all the time. Okay? So this is Paul. So we know the invisible things through the things that are made. We come to know these through these. We, cl we climb this ladder of being. Now remember, for Plato, those, those of you who've been here probably will know this a little bit better, but remember, Plato said... We can't trust the things of the body because the body's depraved. That's Plato. It's a prison house. There's something wrong with it. And because we're in a shifting, changing world. It's Heraclitus's river. Because things are always in flux in our world, they're always changing, we can't know them. The only real knowledge for Plato was the forms because they're unchanging, eternal. Okay? So, now hold on to this because this is getting... to. The, the crux of the whole thing here. Um, for Plato, or for Raphael, he's seen invisible realities. He's experienced them immediately. He's got to find visible things in order to make those invisible realities clear. And let me just... Um, um, I don't know how to put this question. Without prejudicing it, it's, it's, um, what's, what's the difference? Is one, is one more human than the other? Is one more real 
than the other? Are they both the same? These are, these are some of the most important questions that take us back to the Reformation and all that was going on in the Reformation. Was the trigger point faith that you accepted on blind faith? Start over, say. Well, you're, you're asking, you're, the question is like, what's the difference between Aristotle and Plato? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, and maybe I'm just taking what you wrote up there, they're both being told the same, but to Plato says to take those through blind faith versus just accepting that they're from an angel. It's an angel, but it's also just the blind faith that you need to have, yeah. something like that. I, here, I, let, me, let me add a word here, because um, there's a real danger that I'm going to confuse where I don't want to. Um, I should have probably left this out and just put Plato. Plato would have said, if, if, you, know, if you know the Platonic dialogues, you know that um, Socrates was told that he was the wisest man of everybody on earth. And he didn't believe it, and he went around talking with people to find out what the, because that comes from an oracle, the God said that. The God said he was the wisest man. He went around talking with people and he discovered that, that people who thought they knew things really didn't. Every time he questioned them, whatever the justice, truth, beauty, whatever it was, he would engage in a dialogue with these people and they would end up getting really mad at him because he'd show them they didn't know what they thought they did. So the, there's a, a guarded element in the way that Socrates proceeds. I, I want to almost use the word skeptical, but I want, to, I want to try to keep negative connotations, very guarded. What Plato, what Plato and Socrates both make clear is that there are limits to our ways of knowing, that we think we know things when in fact we don't. The only thing that gives us true knowledge is the forms, and if you remember the Platonic cave, the, the allegory of the cave, you don't get to those until you get to the end. And what gets you there is questioning, that you actually ask questions, because remember the people at the bottom are chained because they think they've got the answers. And you don't come to the forms without that long, painful ascent. And who gets to it? Because to get to those, you have to go, you have to enter into a, a mystical condition. That's outside, that's outside the changing world. St. Thomas and Aristotle are going to refute that. I mean, I, I'm going to give you this thing next week that'll give you St. Thomas's, basically Aristotle's refutation of Plato and this question. But so Plato would say, um, we we know that the forms are there because the um, the things in nature share an essence. We're all humans here. Every one of us is humans. So we, we share the same nature, even though each one of us is different. So the, the, the fact that we're, we have something in common makes us know we have an essence that we share. There's something universal among us. All these chairs are chairs, even though they're different. They're different by the matter that makes them up. You can have buttons. Each button is the same. What distinguishes one from another is the matter, the, tr the part of the tree it came from. So it's matter that makes us individuals. But we share an essence. Um, what Plato recognizes is that there's this universality, this shared essence to things. They all share in being. So he knew, he concluded that there has to be this universal, unchanging essence, these forms. 
So leave faith out of it for a second. Um, that's, that's with respect to knowledge. Aristotle was sure, he said, we can know visible things because the forms are in them, in us, in a tree, in a bed, whatever it is. Um, so there, there are two ways of knowing that are almost opposite in some ways to each other. My question is, what's, what's, what's the difference with respect to our human nature and what it means for us in the way that we deal with things? I don't know how to put that any other way to, to try to keep it as neutral as I can. Could it be our reasoning? Well, you said what's different. His reasoning to interpret something could be different from mine. Well, how does that apply to either one of these? I'm not following, sorry. Well, I think it's a question you asked. You said, how could we be different? If we're looking at the same things, is, is that what you were inferring? Yeah, but we can we can use our powers of reason. Um, but our powers of reason are not necessarily the same. Well, I would I would say if we share an essence, they are the same as a power. Oh, as a what power. What we do with them can differ because okay. of our experiences, what happens in our you know yeah, um, the shape. But all of us, even if we have differences in our experiences, we can still share in the truth of an argument. I mean, when you go in a courtroom and there's clear evidence that something happened and you present that evidence, it's clear, beyond a reasonable doubt it happened. You can point to that and make an argument. It's a structured argument. If somebody makes a claim, takes you to court on the basis of something that can't be proved, then they have no business condemning you. None. Because the evidence isn't there. That's a standing principle in our governance. Um, before you condemn somebody, we're presumed innocent before there's evidence showing otherwise. We can make reasoned arguments. So even if we have a variety of experiences, we still trust in our powers of reason to help show us something. So that what we do is rational, just, right. You know. I look at Plato as more intuitive than Aristotle as more, you know, scientific or rational, logical. That's the way I see it. Plato is, uh, he can't prove these things. He accepts them as true, that there is some idealized form. Yeah. There's no way to prove that. St. Thomas offers a proof. I'm going to wait on this until next. St. Thomas, is, I don't, I mean, I, St. Thomas's answer to me, and this is just sound, but I'll wait until next week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a jump here for a second and, and make a claim, and I'm going to have to back this up next week. Um, we've got to watch our time here. I'm going to say that Aristotle's is more natural, more real, sounder, because it starts with what's real, the, the thing in front of us, whatever it is. I'd call that more logical. Wait, 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 Don, wait. I don't want to get there. Hold on. I'm, it's, it's more real. It's, it's, it's more in accord with our nature. Um, so if I have a bowl of soup in front of me, you know, or a rock or a book, whatever it is, that thing is real. Okay? Um, um, if, you, if you think about some of the poetry that we've been reading, 
you can see that if we start, if we start with the common thing that we know is real, we can find metaphysical realities in it. We know that from the lyrics. We saw it in a four-year-old girl who cut her finger. You saw it in a wind hover, a bird. You know, the, the, so many of the poems that we've been dealing with have to do with very ordinary, familiar things that reveal supernatural realities. They're there. How many of us see them? But every one of the poets that we've been reading, because poetry, remember I've always said, takes us back to the concrete world, reveals what's right in front of us that so often we don't see. It's been one of the pushes of the course. Here, you start with what you don't see. And rem remember how different this is from Paul, because Paul himself says, we come to know the invisible things through the visible. Come to know the invisible through. So, um, the question here is, where do we start? Do we start with ideas in our head? And I'd say, I want to make a distinction between intuition, but I want to hold it. Do we start with ideas in our head, or do we start with our senses, what's in front of us? Here's one of the interesting things. If you start with the visible things and move up the, the chain of being, you, you encounter spiritual realities all along the way. If you start with an idea in your head, you very often don't get back to visible things. In fact, let me make this clear if that's not, because this is sort of stunning me. What Raphael is saying in this, this description of his method is, I've got to search for metaphors, visual images, sensuous things, as a way of describing the immaterial things. If you watch what happens, we never get back here. If you, take the, if you take the war in heaven, to me, remember, he's trying to describe metaphysical realities. How do we understand time in eternity? Raphael talks about three days. Are there days in eternity? Is there sequence in eternity? Not as we know it. The laws of sequence don't apply. You're in an eternal, unchanging world. It's, it's an ongoing now. It's almost impossible, I think, to grasp that notion, but it's there. He's using metaphors everywhere. Three days, a sword cutting off a sword, picking up mountains. The, the real issue should be, what do those things represent? If we go to the physical world, we've got an image of a mountain being uplifted by one angel and another picking up an angel or a mountain and throwing them at each other. What do those images represent? We don't know. We, we can't get back to it. What we've got is this ridiculous picture of angels being cut in half and then merging back together again and we can't we're not we're 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 either in we're not we're not back in reality we don't know anything and i'm saying this be just be mindful when we get to dante dante's not going to avoid mysteries but we're going to have an absolutely different experience of what goes on with mysteries in the way that dante approaches them here I think we're left in a gray world where we have some sense something's going on in this eternal world. We're getting images of swords and cuttings and mountains and cannons and those are graphic it's images. An immaterial world. Right, sorry? Heaven's an immaterial world, so we got all these things, these yeah. physical things. Yeah. And, it's, and by the way, and it's led lots of critics, and I'm certainly one with them. I remember reading this when I was younger and, and grasping it but I don't think I ever saw the full significance of it. So many people find Milton objectionable because he's, 
He's taking a Christian world and presenting it in Homeric terms. Battles, swords, cutting off, merging back together, mountains. We've got a sense of an Olympian world, but my, 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 seriously, my real question here, if you're dealing with a metaphysical condition, if you're dealing with eternity, an immaterial world, you're dealing with an immaterial world, a now that's ongoing, where there's no sequence of succession as we know it, and you've got these images drawn from our material world to help, are we any farther along in what we know of that world by the way Milton does it? Um, because it, it's, a, you know, it, the, the question here, where should we start with our ways of knowing? Is there a difference between starting with a real thing or starting with an idea in our mind? And by the way, just to make this even darker, just before Milton writes Paradise Lost, what French philosopher begins to write something that radically changes the world? Descartes? Discourse on method? I think, therefore I am. What Descartes did that's, that's still with us in its effect is to make a schism between our senses and our mind. He says what we know are innate ideas. The question that all of us have to ask following Descartes is, can we ever get to the world of concrete material things? The idealist philosophy takes its name from ideas. Their belief is, What's outside of our mind is, an immaterial, is a material world. It's incongruous with an immaterial you know, mind. So in the modern world, we live in a schism. We, we, we live for ideas in our heads. We think, and there's the relative in what my idea is, as good as yours, I can. So what's happening at this moment here, historically, in time, is a fundamental difference between starting points whether we're really starting with the, the real thing in front of us or we're starting with some idea. And if it's an idea, how do we know it's real? I mean, what, what's its reference point? What do we do with it? Because one of them lives in concrete reality, the other lives in abstractions of the head. And as corporeal creatures, creature, uh, we're not angelic. We're not angelic. We have bodies. It's in our nature to know things concretely, material, th through matter. That's our basic way of knowing. So, the, the, one of the interesting things that's going on, are, there's two things going on. One is we've got Milton um, putting, having um, Raphael describe his approach here, what he's doing. It exactly describes what Milton's doing. Milton knows that. So, what are our starting points? Is there a difference between starting with what's real before us or what's an idea in our head? And the other is, what does this do for our reading of Genesis? Because we've just learned that this whole knowledge has been given to Adam. This is not according to scripture. This is not Genesis, we know it. This whole mode of knowledge has been given to Adam and it's angelic. It's an angelic mode. And by the way, I, I mean, I have, no, I have no doubts in my own when I think about Milton, how important that was for him. Why couldn't anybody question Milton on his beliefs? And why did he believe anybody could hold? Because according to his mind, I mean, now put faith back up here. According to his mind, if you had faith in something, it was an eternal thing. 
Who can verify it? Who can test it? Who can argue against it? If you start with these things in your head, the Plato, Plato's forms, if that's where you begin, who can question you? There's nothing, it's, you don't have to test yourself against the physical world. You, you can do away with the Eucharist. You don't need it. What's important is this private act that you've got in your head. So interestingly, what he's doing is he's planted this thing in Raphael that Raphael's now going to pass on this knowledge through posterity. <laughs> what do we do with that? Does it get to Moses? Or, or not? Or I mean, how do, we, how do we read Genesis now with Milton? Does anybody have the flyer that I, that I handed out? To, you know, to, do you have it, Lewis? I'm, we're going to stop. Here, I want, if everybody could just hear this. This is Harold Bloom, who's, a, who's a, an important American critic. He says this. Um, Even more recent times, critics have looked to Milton to explain a radical turn in the development of Western civilization. This is Bloom. Harold Bloom, for example, in The Anxiety of Influence, Bloom is so modern in this respect, very Gnostic, very Gnostic, um, wrote that Milton is the central problem in any theory and history of, of poetic influence in English. He is the central problem there at the threshold of modernity because he was such a great poet, and he's produced nothing but divisions. T.S. Eliot didn't like him. The influence of, I'll read some things next week. Um, um, lot, lot, the Romantics, so many of the Romantics loved him. You know, you, I've shown you that with Blake. and So here we are on the verge of modernity with this extraordinary poem. It's a, it's a reworking of Genesis. It goes to the very the source of our disorders because it's dealing with the fall and it's introduced all of these problematic areas. So here we are at the beginning of modernity this is several centuries later, but here we are. So let me stop because we're any, I think we can take some brief questions. I want to get out of here before that, but I think we've got a few minutes if you guys, any questions? Make sure Jeff gets all this. Because yeah. yeah. I, I was taking those. Because I, I, I know he'll love this stuff. I'm sorry he's not here because I know yeah, he would, know. he would have been going nuts. He would have. Any questions? or? Insofar as we have a body and we're corporeal creatures, yes, we're not angels. Alan Tate, who to me, who's one of the most extraordinary critics, actually converted too, converted Catholicism. Jacques Maritain was his guy, and Jacques Maritain converted. And Maritain was one of the great philosophers, I think, pro probably the greatest philosopher of my time, I believe. Amazing man. Um, Alan Tate wrote two essays. He, he, he was a poet, a man of letters. He loved literature. He wrote novels and poems. And, but his best work, I think, was in criticism. And his criticism is just amazing to read. He wrote two essays. I'm, I'm going to read from them next week or the final week when, I, when we finish Milton. One of them was called The Angelic Imagination. And the other one was called The Symbolic Imagination. And what he makes clear in those is um, how much the modern world has, has 
has given itself over to living in the head in abstractions, removed from the world, um, an angelic way of living our lives, or the symbolic imagination in which you start with the visible and because here, the, here's the other, I mean, go back to, I mean, the reason I put these arrows this way is I don't think we ever get back to nature. What happens with the platonic imagination is that it circumvents nature. To stop and think about this for a second, remember, one of the premises of the Re Reformation mind is nature's depraved. I mean, how do we get back into the natural world to, as, as a source of help, a reference point for us to learn? We're estranged from nature in the modern world. Everything about the modern world estranges us from us. It's a, it's a, for the Manichaean mind, it's, hor it's horrors. It's an ugly, ugly world. Hopkins, the wind hover, you know, the poets that I've been reading. So, um, I, in me, to me, it's not just, it, I, it's, it seems to me it's more natural. The, the starting place for us as humans is with our bodies and what comes. And for anybody who takes that seriously, it doesn't mean we ever stop, because I don't believe we do. I think we're meant to get to eternal realities. But how do we get there? How, do, how reliable? And, um, do we circumvent the natural order? Do we go around it? Do we, do we work with it? Um, it's just, to me, it's one of the most fundamental questions of our time. And what makes it even more interesting is Christ came in, took on our nature, our understanding of the Eucharist is he is fully present, body, soul. The significance of that for our age, not small. And, and think about one of the greatest books, I think, produced in our century by John Paul. Theology of the Body. God, that didn't come out of nowhere. Theology of the Body. We're constantly trying to recover our, our human nature and everything's great about it. One of the serious questions we should be asking is, to the extent that we try to escape our nature or deny it, how much harm do we do ourselves? There's something glorious in our humanity. I, you know, I've been doing this stuff. Remember Flannery O'Connor when she shows us that shrunken image in a cave? There's so much in our movies that it is so negative about our bodies. And, and yet, when you look at the really great accomplishments, it could be Einstein in science, or Heisenberg, or, you know, or it could be great poets, um, Melville, or Eliot, or Faulkner, whoever. E everything great about what they do is discover these extraordinary things in our nature, nature itself, our human nature. Um, we, we, we don't do as well when we deny our nature. The great things come out of this deep acceptance of, of something great given to us by God in creating us the way he did. Okay.